Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Jackie Conforti. We will be doing a part two to our previous interview regarding his book, The Stolen Narrative of the Bulgarian Jews and the Holocaust, published by Roman and Littlefield 2021. It's an honor to be with you today again. Thank you for your attention and thank you for everything you invested in this book thank you for your interest i'm i'm thrilled that you are so uh affected by the book and that you're interested by it so i'm i'm intrigued by that thank you if you don't mind me asking this book has been out since 2021 what kind of feedback have you received about the book can you comment on the responses to the book in different communities or different kinds of readers? Well, first of all, as a filmmaker who made his first book, the mm-hmm. feeling is very unusual. As a filmmaker, usually you feel the audience when they watch the movie, if they're moved or or provoked or they're sad or happy, you, you feel that and as immediate reaction when you show a film. And then if you have Q&A immediately, you have a conversation after. So the experience of writing what the book was like, doing mail in a bottle. You put a note in a bottle and you send it, and then you're not sure who got it, where did they get it? Did they read what's inside? Did they try to respond? Is it coming my way at all? Yeah. That's sort of the unusual uh, situation. So uh, the first, you know, I was looking for feedback, but the feedback I received was from scholars who I asked to review the book, the first ones, and who have um, provided some quotable uh, comments about the book that are on the cover. That was very encouraging. And then uh, once I started getting reviews, it was a few individuals who bought the book. The book is extremely was extremely highly priced in the beginning, the hardcover. Now we have a paperback also, so that's a little more reasonable. So there were not a lot of individuals who bought the book, so I was just getting trickles of responses. And then we started getting, you know, published uh, reviews. It took almost a year uh, for published reviews to start coming out. And that was very heartwarming and exciting. 
but still, I mean, I'm glad there's a book there and it's a whole different feeling than making a, a movie, but it has also a different lasting effect and, and is different than the immediacy of a movie. So I am pleased, but not pleased enough. I, 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 you, you less understand the impact of the book. I think once I start getting, there's more people quoting it in different reviews, in different articles. So that's where it, it, it's kind of becomes interesting that it became part of the, of the discourse and people are responding, commenting, quoting. It's a whole new experience for me to be in this type of dialogue. Can you compare and contrast how it feels to you to create a book as opposed to creating a film? What are the similarities and differences? Uh, you, you see that I, I did two films before this book and I felt that I have researched so thoroughly the, the visual part and the testimonies. And the type of work I did was more a forensic type work rather than what, let's say, scholars would 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 do. I was just trying to understand. So in a way, um, in a movie, you, you have to make it all sing. It's like an opera, you know? You have to tell what you have to tell, but you have to make it in a way that, that has a flow and has a rhythm to the story, and you're limited in your ability to come back to ideas or you or or to go back in time or back and forth in time. You can work out certain uh filmical language type tricks to do things, to change space, to go back in place and time, but there's limits to how much you can do it. And so the, the musicality of your presentation and the rhythm of the presentation uh, defines how long it can be or how complicated it can be. So while my films were loaded with thousands of thousands of details that I carefully was uh, wanted to place exactly where they are, whether they are being noticed or not, but just for the sake of the reconstruction. That's how it felt when I did the film, The Optimists. So many people who lived through the time had a lot of things that triggered their memories. They remembered the, the moments, the feelings, the things that I was able to recreate, mostly based on people's stories. I was able to create atmospheres and sounds that were relevant to the moment of the event. For example, in one of my oral histories, I was told about the music that was playing in the radio that stopped playing in order to tell about the death of King Boris. So when I did The Optimist, I was able to create, you know, the, the story, the radio was a motive that was repeated. And at some point it came and he was playing this rumba negra that is called, and then it stopped. And then I used the announcement of the death of the king and the sounds of the funeral. I was able to recreate a soundtrack that was uh, triggering memories in people. So these all these little thousands of, of, of items that were in place were able to tr trigger the memory of those who went through because they had authentic things to trigger it. 
those who were not experts, I saw a nice film, a moving film, uh, all kinds of other things, but they were not aware of how thorough the puzzle and, and how complex the puzzle was in really putting real elements in there. But still, I felt I failed the subject because I could not really address everything I wanted. I was not able to uh, get the resources to make the film that is possible to do. And so the films I did were with two hands. So there's sometimes limits to to your your abilities, to your talents, to your, to your ability to function as a multi-talent and the budgets and, and things like this that where you do independently. In the book, so I was walking around before the book, I was walking around with the load on my shoulder that I failed the subject. Or well, I didn't fail it, but I failed to share all the insights that I was able to collect and accumulate. And so that was weighing on me. And then I started, once we started working on the book and I had a partner for the book, Marta Alajem, uh, Marta Alajem Bloomfield. And without her, I wouldn't be able to finish the film. It created an environment of back and forth where I could, you know, had to translate all the oral histories, had to make sure that they're understood, had to all the time make it more and more and more accessible in the process. Alone, I would not have been able to generate the, the neither the patient nor the insight to understand that things are not understandable. You see, the, the testimonies are in Hebrew, are in Bulgarian, are in other languages. The, the book was written in English. It's not my native language. And so what I, you understand when I translate something may be different. So it was very helpful working on as a team. And it was very helpful in being able to go into many, many different details and aspects of the stories rather than create a linear presentation, which would have been a movie that needs to have artistic style and structure and cannot be repetitive, cannot be boring, cannot be slow, cannot be all kinds of things. So this this was a liberating feeling and also the feeling that once there was a first draft, I, I felt a relief. I felt a relief because the draft was the map to the material I collected and documented. And so I said, even if this book is never published, at least it tells what's in my collection that I collected. Because I have done so many oral histories. I have over 10,000 photographs. I have researched films. And I've done this type of research that usually people don't do because they don't have the resources, or at least didn't have at the time. So all these things... It was a great relief to do the book because now it's it's out there and, and people can access it. Because before, Hebrew, Bulgarian, German, all these languages makes it unaccessible and unconnectable. You alluded to King Boris, and I was curious to ask you, what did you learn about King Boris during the course of your research that surprised you most? And what do you most want your readers and the viewers of your films 
to learn and know about King Boris that they would not otherwise have understood. I cannot say that I am the only one who, who views him in a certain way. And the things that I uncovered was, look, I, I started the process with a very, how shall I say, positive approach and naive approach. Oh, all the Jews in Bulgaria were saved and there was no Holocaust. That was very inspiring. But the more I was researching, the less the story looked happy. And so King Boris, uh, I, I became aware all the time that there's a huge campaign to make him, to rehabilitate him and to make a rescuer out of him. And uh, I interviewed his son, uh, Prince Simeon, when he was in exile in Spain in 1990. That was just about the first, after the first Bulgarian democratic elections, the end of communism. He wanted badly to go back to Bulgaria as a king, actually. And he ran a huge campaign trying to rehab his uh, father. I was able to witness a lot of the activity around this and was also aware of the how shall I say, the secrecy and the trickery that was involved in that. And so uh, King Boris was an opportunistic person who cared about his, his monarchy, about his regime. And he, you know, all he tried to do is return some territories to Bulgaria that were lost in World War I when his father was in charge. And for that, he was willing to sacrifice uh, the Jews, and he was willing to try and play a game of getting as little involved as possible in the war. Maybe from a Bulgarian standpoint, he was a hero, even though, you know, <laughs> his regime brought 50 years of communism after them and a lot of other trouble. So I cannot see how he could be a hero for Bulgarians. But... Um, you know, there's, a, there's an anti-Semitic speech that he held in order to convince the church that the Jews should be deported. I was not, I was, did not discover, I did not discover any surprising or positive things. I mostly discovered negative things that were hidden in attempts to make a hero out of somebody who's not. And not only a hero, making making him a victim, the the... The myth was that because he saved the Jews, Hitler killed him, so uh, he's the victim. And by him being victim, it hides the victims of his regime, the people he deported, the, the people he were willing to give also and was not successful. It's it's a big fabrication and, 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 and uh, it's being used permanently still by Bulgaria. Part of it is their fear. If they will feel themselves responsible to what happened in the Holocaust, it's going to cost them money. So that's why we all need to lie about Bulgaria's role during the Holocaust. And that's sort of the way it affects official Bulgarian representatives. They will always deny. And I just want to say something. For me, the denial of the obvious made me more suspicious about what is not that we don't know. 
and that they're still hiding or trying to hide or will never admit if they deny the, the, the obvious. So that made me always more suspicious and more willing. I felt like a forensic researcher making sure that 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 the crime is is that I'm that the, I know that there's a crime and making sure that it doesn't go under my radar. What did you learn during the course of this research about King Ferdinand, Boris's predecessor, that surprised you? What do you feel that listeners and readers and viewers of your films should understand about him, the predecessor to Boris, King Ferdinand? I mostly understood, look, I mostly understood how somebody who was like a so-called, remember there was this terminal playboy, there was this, like somebody who was a, a, a rich and boring and, and, and no good, and he was given a country. That's that's uh, that's basically Ferdinand. And then he was given a country and didn't know how to rule or how to govern or to do anything. And he was a, kind of a corrupt governor. For example, the need to rebuild the train tracks in Bulgaria in World War II were because Bulgaria has ordered substandard... Um, narrow gorge uh, type trains and was uh, incompatible with the rest of Europe. And that's also another example of a certain, how shall I say, corruption, I would say probably. But uh, I want to say what I learned. I learned a lot of things on my own besides learning about people. And I want to say something that when I started working on it, the the sub the the way how it was talked that there was no Holocaust in Bulgaria. So when I spoke first and I said to somebody, "Oh, I'm making a film about how there was no Holocaust in Bulgaria," when I heard myself doing this, saying this for the first time, it felt very very uncomfortable. How do I know that there is no? Why am I repeating something like this? Can I really say there was no Holocaust in Bulgaria? Do I really know what the Holocaust is? And I, I, I was aware of the fact that I don't know a lot of things, and this was the, the impulse to learn more. So I needed to, you know, I need to do more work about the Holocaust, and I've done work about the Holocaust. In, in two Holocaust museums, in a film about Lidice, uh, which is a non-Jewish Holocaust story. I, I really needed to do a lot of work in order to be able to understand the big picture and then place Bulgaria within the context. And so I, I, so I had to learn how to interview people. At the time when I started doing things, the methodology was the fortune of methodology of doing oral histories from Yale School uh, of Oral Histories. And then the methodology was to create a, a questionnaire and have a, a send the questionnaire to, a, a, to the person and then do a, a recorded interview in front of a black screen in a studio. And I felt it was inadequate. It was an unauthentic type medium that can be manipulated. And I also felt that the whole kind of questionnaire is not the right thing to present to somebody before. But in order for me to not define what the subject is, let the people tell their stories. 
and come prepared, but not necessarily worry about my next question. Be more focused on helping the person continue telling them stories, their stories. And if I don't have to ask a question, I will not. And I will never interfere. And because there were, you know, I started doing it with Holocaust survivors. Some of them were very traumatized. They were not just Bulgarians. I had to also develop a, a sensitive way of talking to people, uh, letting each interview, uh, each interviewee get the attention and the intensity of my attention in an individualized way. Some people, I look them in the eyes while they speak, and to 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 help them just focus on me and not and not look to the side or be distracted and uh, help them be uh, energetic because telling the story is not enough. You need to tell it in a film in a dynamic way. It's, you know, a hero that talks like this and tell a story is not a hero. You need the, the guy who wanted to catch a fly and was unsuccessful, but is vivid may come alive a lot more than the hero who cannot deliver his story in a dynamic way. So I had to help people find the speak, speech rhythm that is suitable for them and, and establish an atmosphere in which people are encouraged to be storytellers and dynamic storytellers. And I'm using my body and my, my face and my expressions to help them. So these were things to learn and about his this things to develop, uh, develop methodology for. I started do, working with photographs and video on my computer thirty-two years ago. The technology was very primitive, so I had to learn how to you know how to do all kinds of things on the computer, how to import them, how to you all of a sudden you take a little photo, you put it on a huge screen, you can see details that you don't get to see when you look at it with a little. Uh, with a little magnifying glass in, in a pile of photos. So all of the digitizing, the digital part of it, building databases, trying to overcome all this audiovisual richness that I have, organizing, sorting, I it was never really sorted to the maximum or transcribed to the maximum or so. There's still a lot of parts of my research that I never had the time or the or the priority to go and 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 fully give them the attention they needed. The book quotes 80 people out of over 150 I interviewed. So the, the others probably had something to say too uh or to that could be added to the book. How did your interviewees feel about being interviewed by you? What kinds of personal responses came to you from them? I, well, I had to, I had to, um, it's from them, look, it's for them, it's relatively, somebody came and they had a, a, a visit and they had a chance to, to talk and that person was listening and was polite so that they usually have a very positive feeling but for them it's a one-time thing for me 
I keep seeing these people for 20, 30 years after that, you develop an intimacy with your interviewee that they don't have with you. And you feel like, like a very, very close people and, and an intimate closeness. And you kind of love them and like them. And, and you uh, the relationship keep evolving while they are not part of it, really. So that's an interesting thing. But I want to say, in general, part of my approach to interviewing is an interview needs to be a satisfying experience. I cannot just come to your home and say, okay, tell me about this. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> I got what I did. I got what I wanted. Now I'm running home like a television crew usually comes and tries to exploit the moment. I find it, you know, if you gave me your attention, if you invited me to your home, you wanted to tell your story, my job is here to sit and and be the best listener I can and the best audience I can be so you can be the best storyteller you can be. Because we all know that if we meet somebody who doesn't want to listen to us, we are not encouraged to tell anything. If we sit in front of somebody who's impatient and does, uh-huh, 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 you don't feel like talking. You don't feel like talking. You feel rushed and... So the trick was always to make people feel comfortable, make people feel accepted, make people trust, help them find the speech rhythm that that allows them to be good storytellers. To some people in the beginning of the conversation, they are they are anxious. They can ah, they're out of breath, or they can or they feel confused. So the trick is really to make an environment. Uh, of trust, and then maintain this trust. If if I interviewed you, and somehow in an advanced stage of the film, you say, look, what I said is embarrassing to this or that, or, or is not good, or I wish I didn't say that, I will take it out. Not one teeny little embarrassing detail for somebody should be the thing that my film depends on. So so keeping and, and being ethical and never betraying the trust you are given. For example, if I'm interviewing a Nazi officer, it's very easy to come to him and, and be morally superior and talk to him in a morally superior way. It's bad because it, it I'm busy more looking good and trying to make somebody look bad. If he's bad, I don't need to use him in the film. Maybe he's not as bad as I think. There were also Nazi officers who saved people. But I'll never know that if I'm not a listener and if I'm not open. So if I, I have to listen to people, trust them. If I find that they are bad people or or uh, I will not put them there in order to stick a needle in them. But I totally am interested in division of opinions you know you say something and the other person says something else i will try to put a legitimate debate out without me demonizing one of them or trying to kind of make cheap shots or i find that asking good questions is better than trying to answer the question to end all questions the answer to end all questions if you know what i mean mm-hmm. I always believe a good question is better than 
a reasonable answer. Good question keeps resonating and it may never be uh, will never be resolved. And many of my films, I feel like these questions keep resonating unresolved and that kind of like what keeps it relevant rather than trying to close the box and, and say, that's it, the, the film to end all films or the story to end all stories. Your book alludes to several concentration camps in Bulgaria. The one that your book describes in greatest detail is the Samovitz concentration camp. What did you learn about Samovitz during the course of your research? What should listeners and readers know and understand about it? What was most surprising to discover about Samovitz? So Samovitz was uh, is a is a tiny little town or village. It's like a big a big village on the Danube. Uh, there was a concentration camp that was built by the inmates, and the inmates were people who were uh, arrested after the demonstration of May 24. There was a demonstration in Sofia against the deportation of the Sofia Jews to concentration camps. And the leaders of the community were arrested and 120 of them were sent to some of it where they were building the sheds in which they were living. The, in the harbor nearby, the Danube Harbor nearby, were three boats waiting to possibly deport these people, but that didn't happen. In the camp itself, uh, the regime was pretty harsh. One of the people who was arrested was Rabbi Daniel Zion, who was the, 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 the person who led the demonstration. He was abused there, you know, uh, some people would pull his, his beard and and uh, try to humiliate him. Food was was not good. Uh, health, uh, the health condition were terrible. People would go to take, uh, to go to wash in the river once in a few days with guards. In the river, right where the camp was, there's a peninsula in the middle of the river. And that's where boats who came from Slovakia, uh, Yugoslavia, other occupied parts of Europe, that's where refugees, Jewish refugees on, on boats were trying to escape, going down the Danube with the hope to reach the Black Sea and from there be able to get to Mediterranean, Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to... It was called Palestine at the time, it was the British mandate. Anyway, those boats were stopped right next to where the camp was and not allowed to continue. Those boats had sometimes a thousand people on it, sometimes 1,500 people on them. And they would sit there for weeks and cry. Cry for food, cry for water because they didn't have any. They were not allowed to get off. At night, people would jump in desperation in the water to try to escape, and then they'll be shot at. And thousands and thousands of people have disappeared right there. And so one of my hopes is that at some point there will be a underwater archaeological survey, and then I hope that they will dig out of there the, the hundreds and thousands of people who have uh, died right there in the river. 
This is a hidden war crime. I heard about the word crime uh, when I visited there. It was a process. I visited some of it and talked to some villagers, and they told me about boats with people that are not allowed to go anywhere, and 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 that they sunk in the river. And I tried to 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 cross this information with the information of the. Thracian and, and Macedonian Jews or the Thracian Jews that were deported by Bulgaria via the Danube, but there was no record of boats with, with deportees that were sunk in the river. So I didn't know what to make out of it. And then a few years later, I interviewed an inmate in some of it who told me about the story. I told him, what happened? Did you hear anything about boats that sunk? And he said, oh, thank you so much for asking. And then he told me the story and how horrific it was to hear those people cry for weeks uh, and how they couldn't fall asleep because of, you know, all the noise and, and the, the distress and the tragedy that was just happening next to them. So it was a process. To understand everything, but here another war crime that was never really described anywhere or spoken about, and 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 so I also was thinking, you know, every every time you find something like this, you say, okay, what else don't we know? What else is it hidden? What you know? What else other people can tell? I feel like the area that really needs serious research is the role of the Bulgarian army as an occupying force in Serbia. This is not researched enough. I think uh, having a, a military historian will be really great to have somebody who can really uncover other subjects. I, I mean, I've seen that most of the discoveries in the last 15, 20 years did not come necessarily from historians. They came from people from other disciplines who researched the history through a different prism. There is a work by a lawyer. There is a work by by a, a, um, an economist that 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 uncovered the the economical part of the Holocaust and the and the financial part of the of the Holocaust. I think that the next challenge is for. Uh, archaeological <laughs> marine archaeology, but I also think people like uh, medical researchers. Uh, from the people who were interviewed in Bulgaria in oral histories, in many, many, many of them uh, were referring to babies who died as babies during the time. So child death and and and, and death of 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 infants. Uh, infant mortality during the war and after is something that's not researched. And I would have would love to have somebody who would research the medical impact of the Holocaust on Bulgarian Jews. So there is a lot to, to research, but I think that just sitting in the archives and trying to look at the same documents from 60 years ago does not teach us new things. We need to find different ways of looking and researching. It's not in the archive. What did you learn about Bulgarian Jews before World War II that most surprised you? What did you learn about the Haskalah, about the impact of 
the of the First World War, about the Alliance Israelite Universelle, or about Sephardi Ashkenazi relations that was surprising to you, that was most interesting, that you feel might be most of a surprise to readers and listeners? Very interesting. What was interesting for me, I mean, I didn't have a lot of surprises, I must say. I it was like a very long path of 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 making teeny little steps at a time and reading more and more and hearing people and trying to put it together. But what was very interesting was the fact that, that the Balkan was a melting pot of four Jewish cultures. And some of the things that were in the process of making of the book were very interesting in trying to tell a Jewish a Jewish story, a Jewish history. Usually Jewish history is a very disjointed thing. We hear about this community and this community and that community. And here I, I was able to uh, create a connection between events that happen elsewhere and that affect Jewish migration to the Balkan. And so I felt that, that, that I was able to make connections that Otherwise, I did not see before. And that was always important somehow to understand how those cultures melt, how they connect. Um, I, I know I'm not answering exactly your, your, your question, but I'm trying to find the things that were surprising and uh, that I discovered. Uh, these are the things I'm, I'm, I was, I was, you know, it was nice to find out that the Jews were, uh, that how should I say Bulgarian national feeling and Jewish national feeling were rising in a parallel manner, and that Jews felt like they could be Zionist and Bulgarian uh, patriots at the same time and see no conflict in that. Those were interesting things. But I also must say that much of the things we know about this period, we know from the writing of contemporaries and colorized their findings with their ideology. So in the in the last few years, I, I read some some work by by new researchers who look completely different at the whole role of the notables and, and doesn't look in a negative way. At the at the old-fashioned people or, or those who were for alliance, it, it's it's uh, it's tricky if I'm involved in the history and I also write my history. It becomes a little one-sided. So my feeling now is that there's there's new things that were discovered beyond the stories that I heard about the. Alliance Francaise and the revival of, of, of Jews and, and their culture after the end of the Ottoman Empire. It's not the best answer I could give, I'm sorry. Were there any pieces of information that you felt traumatized by as a researcher? Did you suffer any vicarious trauma learning about the stories of Jewish victims of the Holocaust in Bulgaria. How did the subject matter impact you personally? Was it difficult to come to terms with the information you were discovering? Part of my preparation for the 
project or my, my ongoing learning was I worked on the Holocaust Museum in St. Louis for a period of almost two and a half years. I used it in order to, I did oral histories, did films about different aspects of the Holocaust, research photography of the Holocaust, and seen 40,000 photographs about the Holocaust. I've <laughs> seen archival footage. These were, these were the most difficult times. The difficult times was to sit sometimes for hours and until 2 a.m. in the morning and seeing horrific kind of images of, of abuse of, of, I don't know, a pile of bones of people who died or, or other horrible things. So this was something that was... Um, that was my training ground, so to say. How do I, how do I, you know, what do I do at 2 a.m. when I finish working? And I used to play a little bit. I used to play solitaire for another 20 minutes so that at night I dream about solitaire and not about the photographs I just had to deal with. Uh, so that that's how I handled this. I think I am probably mentally resilient. And so I I, I somehow, um, I was traumatized when I dealt with the, with the Holocaust and the, and the sadistic forms of killing. And of, so look in Bulgaria is relatively, you don't get to see too many atrocities. It's relatively small and, and the killing happens elsewhere. And the ugly parts of the humanization is out of your sight. What's the people who are put in a train and that train goes for three or four or five days from one spot to another and nobody goes out and people start dying there and they have to go to the bathroom and it smells and it's bad. It's, uh, it's a lot uglier picture, but you don't really get to hear about that so much when you deal with the Bulgarian Jews because those images were not exposed to Bulgarians or to the people I interviewed there. So that's always somehow uh, makes it somehow a Holocaust light story, but it's not a Holocaust light. It is a Holocaust. You just don't get to see it because the killing centers are far away. So look, you know, I... Uh, I learned a lot about life and about that there's different people in this world and there's people who are compassionate and there's people who are evil and that, that in every one of us has the potential to be either very kind or very evil. Depends is how, what do we let ourselves behave and do or, or how bad do we let ourselves derail? But it's in us. Everyone can, you know... If you practice sadism once, it's very easy to repeat. It's it's the situations create experiences and they create trauma and, and the trauma is usually duplicated or passed on. It's an ongoing thing. So I think that by me dealing with a lot of the Holocaust in other places allowed me to look at it and not be any more not respond emotionally or shocked or or try to see the big picture. I, re I really wanted to place the evolution of the Holocaust or the final solution and place Bulgaria 
in its relevant place along the history of the evolution of these killing methodologies and, and in the whole campaign to kill all the Jews. They may have not understood the, the, the role, but I wanted to. And so these were the things that I felt like the book, going back to the book, that I felt the book is giving. The book gives a sense of who we are and how did we get there, and that was very important. Uh, what is Jewish history or other vectors that affected Jewish history in the middle in the Middle East? And then I wanted to understand the dynamic of the final solution and the Bulgarian uh, role in it. And then the way how the story was handled, used, misused, and then represent also those whose narratives were stolen, whose narratives were silenced, whose narratives disappeared or were killed. So uh, that's, I think, the, the difference in what I wanted to achieve in the book, and in a way is a little different than what other people do when they write a book. I try, you know, I try to address different sides of it that I felt were lacking in other works, but it's more, it gives you a sense of general orientation, I would say. That's the purpose of the book, to orient yourself. It's not the answer. It's not the ultimate answer to everything. It doesn't have all the details about everything, but it tries to contextualize and give you a big picture. Two individuals in the book that I'd be curious to ask you about are Harry Nisimov and Nico Nisimov. What can you tell us about them? Why are they noteworthy? Uh, Harry Nisimov and Nico Nisimov are brothers. They, uh, they're brothers and uh, they share a very dramatic story. Nico Nisimov and Harry Nisimov both were musicians. Nico was a saxophone player of the most popular jazz band in Bulgaria. So he was like a star. And Nico was a pharmacist. His brother is a chemist. They both were children of a owner of a pharmacy and a chemical and a farm and a pharmaceutical company uh, of their father. And so they went to study in order to be able to keep up the factory and everything. And uh, during the war, Nico, who was a pharmacist, was drafted to work in a hospital in occupied Trace. In uh, will come to me in a second. It's a, it's a famous town that I keep remembering, but now it's out of my mind. But it will come shortly. But it's in Trace, and he. Uh, was arrested when the Thracian Jews were arrested on March 3rd. He and some other Bulgarian uh, doctors and, and, and pharmacists who were there. And Inksanti, that's the name of the of the of this of the town they were. And he was taken, he was taken basically and deported to Duknitsa and was in a tobacco warehouse for about 14 days on the road. Uh, when the train passed by, the, with the deportees passed by South Bulgaria areas where Jews were working in labor camps trying to widen the train tracks, Nico's brother worked 
along as a as a forced laborer was working along the tracks and his friends saw Nico in the train and and alarmed Harry that his brother is on a train and Harry has escaped at night went to Sofia and started talking to friends of Nico non-jews telling him that he was deported and trying to get them to get involved to free him and those friends went the next day and was they were able to find Nico and then were able to go to the Ministry of of Health and say those Jews are Bulgarian Jews they're not supposed to be deported and somehow those Jews were taken of the trekkie and another 11 people were taken off the train and the rest of the people who were there were deported basically to Treblinka and killed upon arrival. So he was he had like a miracle type of a rescue story. His rescue story is uh, highlighted in my film The Optimists, but even in more detail in the film Balkan Jazz tells basically the story of Nico and his brother and his friends. If the optimist was trying to tell the big story, the opus magnum of what happened in Bulgaria and uses a lot of a lot of people, Balkan Jazz was an ex, uh, experiment in minimalism in which I had 150 witnesses, but I only decided to use three or four as a decision of trying to be as minimalist as possible rather than try and throw all the vegetables to the salad. I, there's one thing I like a lot is minimalism uh, in my work. I, 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 especially it's important for me because I have so much material. It's always easy to throw in something else or something else or add something rather than just try to focus on the essence of, of things in, in the concentrated way. Speaking of the, the Nisimovs, as musicians, um, can you tell us about, to the extent of your knowledge, about any literary and artistic output by other Bulgarian Jewish Holocaust victims um, that readers and listeners might be interested in? Because is the, the thing is that it's such a small community and there's mm -hmm. so little done. So for example, Hari wrote a book he wrote a book mm -hmm. that's called By the Skin of Our Teeth, mm -hmm. which is basically his memoir from labor camp, from this story of his brother. It came out in Bulgarian, and it was translated in English, but never published in English. I have a lot of manuscripts of people who wrote stuff that never got published. It's just too esoteric and too small of a community and too little of an interest in general for mm -hmm. this story. So um, I'm trying to think, I don't think there is any, I don't think that there is any major kind of an artwork devoted to the subject. The problem also is that because it was, propaganda was so easily uh, applied and used for that, it's so easy to make it, to fall into the trap of the cliché. Oh, the good king who saved the Jews, the Bulgarian Schindler. So it's kind of exciting. So if you want to tell the story of Bulgarian Schindler, there is not such information. So you need to invent it. You need to kind of like be very forgiving 
in order to create such a thing. So then it becomes less authentic of a piece, and it becomes a piece of propaganda or manipulation and so on. So that's where there was money to create pieces, big pieces of art. They were funded by some people who had an interest. There were so many movies that were made about the Bulgarian Jews and always the funders were the rescuers. So I'm, I'm, I'm always a little skeptical about that. Um, I Another thing is like, if you make a movie, let's say about this period as historical, it's so easy to become a, a so-called costume movie. Like, oh, the general is wearing a general clothes and the king is making kingly gestures. And, and it's all kind of like becomes unreal and, and, and characters that don't really exist or don't, don't have a character. They're just like a puppet with some kind of a clothes or a uniform and, and gestures. So it's kind of it really requires a lot of um, artistic gifts to be able to make a meaningful piece without falling into the traps of the manipulations and so on. I can say that I have I mean I come I came to documentary from fiction and I've worked on four different four different scripts for fiction about the Bulgarian Jews, different stories that I took and, and developed. The problem is that that uh, I'm an independent person and cannot chase people to read. In the film industry, nobody likes to read. They want you to tell them the story in 30 seconds. And I just am, am I'm eager to make a meaningful piece of work but I'm not very good in trying to uh, make people who don't want to read, read something. So I have a lot of stuff. I hope that I hope that to somehow this year to complete my documentary film work on Bulgaria. I'm doing now, I'm working on three films parallel right now. One is finished and one is, and, and two others are in the making. And, um, after that, I'd like to move on and, and do some fiction and see maybe I can I can work on a novel. I would like to write a novel. I have a lot of material, but remember, English is not my native language. And so I don't necessarily feel that I'm ready for that. I it's a it's a it's an it's a huge climb to rise to the occasion of making something like that that is meaningful. But I hope to do that in the next few years. What can you tell us about Bulgaria's Jews since the 1990s? How has the community changed since yeah, the fall of communism? It started a big wave of, of Jewish immigration to Israel. And, and, and also a back and forth. People who went to Israel but then went back to Bulgaria and, and were like in both places. Until then, the, the direction used to be a one-way kind of a ticket. Uh, there were a lot of people who were who came to Israel, and, and my mom was very much involved uh, voluntarily in finding work for many of those Bulgarian Jews. My mom was an architect, and it just happened shortly after my father passed away, and she didn't want to be an architect anymore, and this wave of new immigrants 
and that she could help them and help them find a job and meet new people was extremely uh, was extremely positive for her, and she was very much engaged in uh, doing this type of 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 work. That's what I can say about uh, Bulgarian Jews. There is a small immigration. It's a different. It's a different culture. You see, we are kind of like connected to the Hebrew language, and they, you know, th those who grew up in Israel, and those who came from Bulgaria, who had a disconnect, had a cultural disconnect of fifty years. Um, so that's what I can say about that. Can you comment on the lives of Bulgarians in Israel? How did life change for them in Israel? What aspects of Bulgarian cultural heritage do, do they still identify with? What what is being lost? Oh, look! Any any immigration is a is a, a trauma of sorts. It doesn't have to be a terrible one, but it's a it's a struggle. You are not yeah. able anymore to express yourself the way you are. All of a sudden, you have to go to a doctor, and your five year old has to translate for you, and mm -hmm. and 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 your children have to take care of the parents. Uh, so it's a very it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. Uh, some people had opportunities to start new and and find a new job. You usually need to find a new job. You cannot talk your previous profession unless it was a portable profession. My parents were lucky; they were architects. They didn't depend on the language to to work. So they could come and and be and 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 get integrated in Israel, even though they never spoke very good Hebrew ever. But they were able because of their profession. But if you are a professor in the university, or you're a doctor, or a pharmacist, or in any other profession, all of a sudden you may not qualify to be who you are, or you need to really learn. A lot or study or pass a bar or other exams to be able to uh, work in the new place. So it's always a trauma, but I think that because it's a, it was an immigration country and because of the way how they were helped, it was less of a trauma than for other peoples who are. Uh, and I'm aware of the fact when my mom passed away, I I was not aware of all the hundreds of people who came to to her funeral to be grateful for how she helped them integrate, find a job, be a friend, be supportive. So she was a charitable, she was a charitable agency of one person. But people like that made it really helpful. To, to other immigrants. And I'm sure that there's other people who are also involved. So the old generation made it easier for the new one. Who is Angel or Jackie Wagenstein? What does your book I, reveal about him? What about him? Angel Wagenstein is a very famous uh, Bulgarian scriptwriter, novelist, who is from Plovdiv, and was born the same year that my father was born. So I think that they may have known each other, yeah, from school, from early times. He's a very, very uh, capable uh, author. 
and the scriptwriter is wonderful and he's uh I recommend reading his books but I think I don't know there are some that were supposed to be translated to English Angel Wagenstein is is the way how he's uh he's written and pronounced his name and he's 100 years old I actually visited him last my last visit in Sofia which was in June but he's 100 years old I met him many times the first time I met him 20 years ago and then I interviewed him a few times but last time I visited him he, he was not sure he still remembers everything he was a little bit he, he was getting old how has Bulgaria's collective memory regarding the Holocaust changed and evolved since the fall of communism? It's it's all being exposed to propaganda. It's either the the first 50 years, the, the head of the Communist Party was the person who saved the Jews and then started infiltrating the legacy and the story and the myth of the king saving of the Jews. All these approaches are reflect a non-sincere way of dealing with history, a non-critical way of dealing with history. It's manipulated all the time. On September 9th, which is the day the, the, the Russians marched into Sofia, which I don't know to call it liberation or the beginning of oppression of a new one. Uh, that's where, you know, is always the day where uh the and and then in march the day the jews were rescued while they only remember those that were not deported but they don't count those that were deported so it's a celebration about partial rescue without mentioning the 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 dead and the victims and so it's all very very manipulated and all bulgarians if you talk to bulgarians they will say oh i'm so proud of us because we saved the Jews and Bulgarians are so wonderful. And I'm glad for them to want to think this way, but it's a very non-critical way of thinking. It's all based on, on manipulations and not real. The real people who were who should be praised are those who pay the price because of being friendly or supportive or protective of others. And those who were, they really paid a, a personal price for that. So anytime, anytime the king leads the demonstration, I'm a little bit skeptical because the demonstration is supposed to be against the king. So I'm just talking metaphorically. So whenever the the the, the some kind of a person in high power <laughs> is is the shown as a rebel, I'm a little bit of a skeptical. He cannot enjoy both both sides of the of the game, and so in Bulgaria, people are are victims of of this big big propaganda, and and there's no interest at all to hear another version of it. Totally rejection. There's going to be now events commemorating the rescue of Bulgaria eighty years later, and. There was not going to be any mentioning of the bad things. And then the king again is the rescuer. The king, the ally of Hitler, who have agreed to deport 12,000 Jews and explained his, uh, and expressed his interest to deport the other 20, half of the other 50,000 who remained. 
and he was not allowed to deport them, this person is the rescuer. It's really like saying, you hung two of my brothers, but you let me go free. Thank you for saving my life. <laughs> you know, that's that's what I would, I mean, what, what kind of a gratitude it is for you for not killing me. Thank you for not killing me like the others. That's a very, that's a very little bit of a credit to be proud of. And there's very little for us to be grateful to the king. Thank you for not being able to kill us as you tried. So it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem for me. And I'm always shocked to see undecent scholars who will write anything that they think they need to in order to please some politician. And then there's people who make money out of this business of trying to make a, a hero uh, who was not. And, and and it's all about getting power in Bulgaria. And yeah, it's not a it's not a it's not a real claim of anything good. You know, humanity humanity speaks for itself. Acts of humanity are are clear and visible and they happen in real time. They don't happen in retrospect where the cowards try to get credit in retrospect for things they didn't do. In developing this research, were there any books that you personally read on Bulgarian history or the history of the Holocaust in Bulgaria or Bulgarian Jewish history that made an impact on you? Can you can you share? Yes. I, I have a I have a huge library. I have a huge library of I think, I think all the books that came about Bulgaria and the Jews and, and the Holocaust I have, but not also uh, things about that happened in Yugoslavia and in Greece, the Holocaust and then the Holocaust in general. And I've done all this other work on the Holocaust. So I'm, I have a huge library about the Holocaust in Europe and in Bulgaria. So, uh, Lucy Davidovich, the war against uh, the the war against the Jews is an important book, but there's also a lot of Martin Gilbert's books about the 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 Holocaust and and uh, um, there are a lot of Bulgarian Jews who wrote books about about it. In the beginning, it was the first source, so people like Keshales and and his five volume books. Uh, then there were the books of um, Shlomo Rosanes, which are about more uh, right, decent kind of like uh, history or ancient history of the Jews. Barzora's uh, book uh, that came near Baruch's book. Nick Nir Baruch was the biggest expert on the subject. I had very interesting relationship with him and he left me his archive after he passed away. So um, from him, I learned a lot. I, I really learned the most from Neil Baruch. I've done six or seven recorded interviews with him over a span of 20 years. And uh, I, I, I read everything that there was in Hebrew and in English and some things in German and then Bulgarian. My mom would record for me books in Bulgarian before I was able to read Bulgarian. She would record for me on tapes whole books of testimonies, the feel of diary and so on. Over the years, I learned how to read and write Bulgarian also, not just to speak. 
so I was able to access more. But I have all the books that are important for sure here, a few hundreds. And I've interviewed also a lot of the researchers and the experts on tape. So that's how I I develop my my knowledge, I will say. And then also all the millions of details of people's stories, which I had to place in the right context. And so you you learn a lot of things that you cannot learn in a in a in a in a in an archive. For example, a few years ago, a friend who researches the Holocaust told me that he found somewhere one point that tells about different markings for Jewish veterans that allowed them some privilege during the time when others didn't. And so I said, yes, of course, there was this button that was the round button rather than the Jewish star button, which was the veteran's privilege button, the yellow round button. How do I know it? I didn't find it in the archive. I had somebody who had who, whose grandpa had this button, and he showed me the button together with the medals from World War One. So I was informed about something that you will not be able to find uh, that nuances in the archives. It's just the way how you know what is possible. What is that? Not everything is written, and not everything is documented. I'm searching for years now the decree that caused Bulgaria to deport 4,000 Jews and push them into no man's land because they didn't have a Bulgarian citizenship. We're talking about mid-August, mid-September 1939. 4,000 Jews were just pushed, were arrested and pushed into no man's land between Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria and abused there and raped and whatever. So... You can I cannot find that decree. The, the National Archives don't have it. The libraries don't have it. But there was such a decree. There were 4,000 people who were deported. But we cannot find the original documents. So there's a lot that has disappeared, and there's a lot that I think people also don't want us to find. There is, there is a certain attitude of the guilty in Bulgaria in not trying to clarify and find the truth. You know, if you ask me something and I feel guilty and I don't want to reveal, I'll find ways how to water down whatever you're trying to research. This is what's happening in Bulgaria. Nobody really wants to know the truth. What are some topics that you would recommend for students, scholars, researchers, graduate students pertaining to the Holocaust in Bulgaria and the Jewish experience during World War II in Bulgaria that have not yet been explored. In the course of your research, were there topics or pieces of subject matter that you would like to see pursued as research by others in the aftermath of your book? Can you can you share any such suggestions? I, I hope there will be, uh, as I said before, I think um, some people who will ex- uh, explore the medical the medical effects of the anti Jewish laws and the Holocaust in Bulgaria, um, the mental the mental effect, the trauma of people that was never really researched. My oral histories 
are there. They're a body of content of interviews with a lot of people that that if you look at them or listen to them, you will find other subjects to address and other uh, aspects of the of the human experience of the community. So I think that my book is just me trying to give a little kind of a map road to the material I collected. There's a lot more to find there. There's a lot more to research and sort. Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge body of testimony, and 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 they are interesting interviews. They're not boring interviews. Bo boring is not bo boring is not an option for me. So I believe, like, if we didn't have an interesting conversation, it will not be an interesting interview. So it's always a challenge to to be the best listener I can. Let the other person tell me, not trying to water down what they say. But I think that my collection at the Holocaust Museum should be further researched by other people. But I don't want to necessarily tell you, here's the line, here's the bait, there's a fish right here. I suggest going for the lake, you know, and trying to find what kind of fish are there. And and I think that people who are interested to research, especially here, this is an example of an allied collaborating with the Nazis. I think that with my book makes things more accessible, with the oral histories will be more accessible language-wise. The main problem uh, for the subject to be accessed by foreigners is the problem that it's a multi, it's a kind of a it's a multicultural subject that is far away. You don't speak Hebrew, you don't speak Bulgarian, you don't speak German. It's a little, you know, you 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 lack some prisms of looking at things. German is less important, but Bulgarian and Hebrew is, gives you insight into the culture, into the language, into who you're dealing with, and that's the type gives you ability to sense nuances otherwise you're 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 missing but i'm 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 i welcome and i'm glad to encourage anybody who wants to research a certain aspect i can direct them by the subject of their interest but i cannot suggest now where to what to do there's a lot to do i think my work is totally less than thorough my, my work of analyzing the oral histories transcribing and, and whatever. Many of them are not transcribed, they're just briefly logged. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, can you tell us about where your attention and time have gone since completing this book? Yes, I uh, worked for the last year and a half on a film called, uh, my brain doesn't work, uh, Monument to Love, it's called. It tells basically the story of my, uh, how should I say, my path to research the Bulgarian Jews with my mom and my mom's involvement in both triggering the subject and her participant participation in the process and also highlights her memories, her diary that she found of wartime diary. And it's very interesting to see what she felt as a 19, 18, 19 year old girl writing in her diary. 
facing the world falling apart and also uh, her experiences during the war, her ability to find good people who were kind to her during difficult times. That's that's what the film is about. So it's a lot about my mom, her experiences, her diary, and our path together to discover. That's one thing. I'm working on a new book with Martha on a gem uh, Bloomfield, which is based on paintings she made, based on testimonies that we don't have visual representation or documentation. And she created a few of those scenes. Some of them are of Solovit, some of other camps, of other things that are part of the, the story, but don't have a visual documentation. And I'm working on the third film, more document. So with Marta, we're going to do a, a book, which will be also an exhibition and a little film. And then I'm working on another on, a, on, a, on another film. Uh, and I hope that once I do this, I complete my documentary work about the Bulgarian and the Jews, and I want to move into fiction. So I think over the next, over this year, I still plan to deal with these three subjects, and then I want to move to another medium and not necessarily try to make those films with my two hands. It's just too much for me to, it's like embroidering a, a, a circus tent. Yeah. You know, at some point you just, you get tired of, you want to do something else. And also wow. it's a very esoteric subject with very little interest in it. Or so I feel like, I want to do things that have a broader meaning, if possible. And then also feel like, you know, these audiences that are interested in that were already exhausted with too many stories. Anyway, what I'm doing now, and, I'll, and that's the last thing, I'm organizing together with uh, Bulgarian Jewish Heritage House, Yad Vashem, and Barilan University, a conference devoted to... Uh, 80 years Holocaust in Bulgaria, the name of it, one second, is Persecution and Collaboration, Rescue and Survival, New Perspectives Regarding Bulgaria and the Holocaust After 80 Years. It's an interdisciplinary conference, will take place in Yad Vashem, Bar Ilan, and Tel Aviv Cinematic, three days, May 22 till 24. And so that's something I'm very excited by because I was able to bring to this meeting some, all the international scholars that have done anything about Bulgaria and also try to revive the whole, what are the next subjects to discuss and to research. So I want to give a big, hope this conference can give a positive impulse to the field. And there's over 20 people who have confirmed their participation. I can send you a list of the of the names of the people who are going to be there. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Jackie Conforti. We have been discussing his new book, The Stolen Narrative of the Bulgarian Jews and the Holocaust, published by Roman and Littlefield 2021. Thank you. <laughs>